All right, Dr. Norton here with Cymbeline Lecture number three. We're going to pick up in Act 3, Scene 3, with these wild men out in the woods. Guidarius, Avaragus, and their supposed father, Belarius. Now, it's been hinted already in the text that Belarius, um, their father, is not their real father. His code name is Morgan, which um, and he was one of the, the men in uh, the court, we presume. He was very close to the king at one point. But the king, according to Belarius' own story, um, charged him unfairly with um, being a confederate with the Romans and banished him. Uh, he, he charged him with being a traitor. And according to Belarius, this is untrue. It was a false oath that some villains made up about him. But Cymbeline, as we know, is not the brightest of, uh, of fellas. And so Cymbeline believed the bad press about Belarius and banished him. Now, Belarius wasn't going to go down without a fight. And so he worked it out with the nurse, Euryphile, um, to steal the babies. Um, and so he succeeded in doing that. And the two babies, uh, Belarius, sorry, Belarius, uh, Gaider, gosh, Avaragus and Gaiderius, and they have different names too, right? Avaragus is also Cadwall, and Gaiderius is Polydor, um, and uh, and these guys have really been raised since they were two and three years old. Um, since they were very very young, they've been raised in the woods in a cave, and they know nothing else. But what's fascinating here, and I think what's interesting about what Shakespeare is trying to show us is uh, a nature versus nurture tension. And there's something about nature that is in these two men that is strong. They have royal nature. The interesting thing is, though, these men have royal nature, yet they were raised in a cave in the woods. Posthumus Leonatus is said to have had a royal nature, but he grew up in the court. Um, what is the difference between these? Um, I suppose given my lecture last time, if I have uh, perhaps convinced you that Posthumus Leonatus has really lost his honor, he crosses a threshold into Rome and he becomes a different man. He loses his honor and he loses his strength of character. Could it be that his strength of character was simply propped up by the royalty um, with which he lived, the, the royal household? That's hard for me to argue because the royal household is, is where Cymbeline is, and Cymbeline's kind of a louse. But nonetheless, there is something about Avaragus and Gaiderius that is strong and noble. And these two men, Gaiderius and Avaragus, have something deeply, uh, deep strength, something of deep strength in their characters. They seem immovable. And they've lived all this while, and yet they've lived in the wild, and yet they still have something growing in them that is of deep character and deep honor, and something very, very important. Uh, Belarius describes it, Act 3, Scene 3, Line 85, how hard it is to hide the sparks of nature. That's a great phrase. These boys know little. They are sons of the king. Uh, they have no idea. 
that they're sons of the king, nor Cymbeline dreams that they are alive. They think they are mine, and though trained up thus meanly, um, though I've trained them up here in the wild with just, you know, we live in a cave and our, we, don't, we don't have a lot. Um, in the cave wherein they bow, their thoughts do hit the roofs of palaces, and nature prompts them in simple and low things to prince it much beyond the trick of others. That's a great phrase. What is that describing? That is describing the fact that even though they were raised in a cave, even though they were raised in very simple means, even though in the home they've grown up and they've had to kind of bend over and, and, and crouch down, their thoughts, their minds are of such a quality that they learn and they draw things together and they, they are able to, to, to have deep and powerful thoughts. Then he goes on to talk about Polydor, right? Polydor is, uh, is Guidarius, right? Polydor is Guidarius. Um, he says, this Polydor, the heir of Cymbeline, that's the oldest, right? He was three years old. When on my three-foot stool I sit and tell the warlike feast I have done, his spirits fly out into my story. Say, thus mine enemy fell, and thus I set my foot on his neck. Even then the princely blood flows in his cheek. He sweats, strains his young nerves, and puts himself in posture that acts my words. I love it. So he's describing how, even as a young boy, no, I think it's been 20 years. So these are not young boys. These are men now. But when he was just a little boy, he would sit on his knee. And Belarius, or Morgan, his father, his, his, his kidnapped father, um, would tell him stories about war. And he could picture that. The princely blood in his, in his cheeks wanted to, to, to follow in this way. He felt that this was what he is meant to do as well, to protect and to fight for his country. Then he goes on um, about Cadwall and says the exact same thing. He is uh, the younger brother, Cadwall, once Averagus, in as like a figure, strikes life into my speech and shows much more his own conceiving. I like that phrase there. That is... Um, he listens to what I say, but then he creates something more from it. And we've talked about that, right? That's, that's how Leon, Posthumus Leonatus was described at the beginning of the play, as one who could soak up education and create from it. And again, that is the education at its finest. Not that you just sit in some chair, memorize facts, and then barf those facts back onto a test. That, to me, is grotesque. That is not why I'm a professor. That is not why I went into education. That is not what I want to be about. And although every semester I have to deal with that because there are students who are only there to get, to get an A or a B or a C or a D. I had a student last semester who just begged me to give him a D. He said, my goal is to get a D in this class. And I said, wow, really? That's about the most upsetting thing I've heard in a long time. But here we have a different view of education. And education at its finest is, 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 involves this. It involves reading a text, 
listening to a lecture, learning from a professor, someone like me who has read these plays dozens and dozens of times and has researched and done, done so much background research and I, and I understand what's being said and so forth and I, and I relate these ideas or some of them to you in these very simple lectures. But what do you do? You, you start thinking about these things and you create new ideas from them. You take these ideas from Shakespeare that I'm talking with you about and you apply them to your life. You apply them to situations that you're dealing with. You apply them to relationships. You say, yes, yes, there is something very deeply noble about having wisdom and understanding. And we know that those things don't come easy. We know that comes from taking learning to the next level, right? Learning and growing, reading and listening to people of, with wisdom, listening to them speak, and then applying that wisdom to our own lives. That is, is, the, is education at its finest. That is the greatness of education, and that is exactly how this young man, um, uh, Cadwall, is described, right? Hark, he says, the game is roused. O Cymbeline, heaven and my conscience knows thou didst unjustly banish me, whereon at three and two years old I stole these babes, thinking to bar thee of succession as thou refs me of my lands. Right? This is an act of revenge um, that Belarius has that he performs against Cymbeline, an act of revenge. Now, we've heard revenge three times now. Once from Yachimo to Imogen, and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's foolish. Uh, revenge is not what I'm about. And she is one of the wisest, most thoughtful characters in the text. Um, so, oh, sorry, it was first revenge was spoken. Sorry, no, no. Then, then next was Posthumus, right? Posthumus hears the news about his un quote-unquote, unfaithful wife. Of course, she's not, but he believes she is, and he wants revenge. Why? Because he's an insecure, um, foolish man who has forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who he is. And now, thirdly, we hear about revenge from Belarius. And Belarius, again, I think in contrast to Imogen, uh, who refuses revenge, well, what comes of that? What comes of revenge? More damage, more violence, more hatred, more death. That is a circle, that is a cyclical thing. And if we enter into that cycle of revenge, we enter into a cycle of death, we enter into a cycle of despair and depression and, and, and horror. And is that what you want your life to be? It seems that Shakespeare says. You go right ahead and seek your revenge. But you're a fool he says, because this will lead you to greater misery than you already experience in this place of loss. But have you the courage? Have you the, the integrity? Have you the, the courage and integrity of someone like Imogen who says, revenge? That involves debasing myself further? No. Why would I ever do that? No, I will, I will seek more greatness. I will seek more wisdom. I will seek more insight. I will seek to save those who have done me wrong because I know that in doing me wrong, they have damaged themselves. They've lowered themselves. They have ruined themselves. And I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. Powerful. Powerful stuff here. So, these guys, Guiderius and Avaragus, Polydor and Cadwall, right? With their father, Belarius, whose codename is Morgan. They are an example of 
of a few different things. The pastoral tradition um, is kind of an interesting concept in Shakespearean literature. The pastoral tradition is not just in Shakespeare, but these this idea of, the, of, of, of living out in the land, living out in the pure country um, is good for the soul. The pastoral tradition is, is one that is detached from the city and the vile nature of the city or the court life. Um, there are others. Uh, let's see. Um, there are many who talk about the pastoral tradition as this idyllic place. Living out away from the court, away from the city, keeps you uncontaminated and keeps you pure. Now, in truth, I don't think that's what Shakespeare's doing here. I think he's using images of the pastoral. That's where these three guys live. Um, but he's not saying that, that the pastoral makes them any better. What makes them better? Well, their integrity and their courage makes them better. Uh, and that can be found both at court and in the country, both in the city and in the country. So your honor has very little to do with where you are, but rather who you are. All right, let's move ahead. So word gets back to Imogen that Posthumus wants to kill her, and she decides to fly, and she decides to escape, and, and, and perhaps go and find him and cure him of this madness. And I need to kind of speed this up. I know I don't have a whole lot of time left. But what happens? What happens is that Imogen leaves, disguises herself as a man, becomes a man. That's an important thing. Cross-dressing in Shakespeare can be very important for showing the, the subversion of gender. And what is a man and what is a woman? Um, there are some distinct things in men and women, but perhaps not what we in our culture make of it. Perhaps we in our culture have far too limiting views of male and female. And it seems that Shakespeare challenges these traditional views of gender all the time. Uh, can women be educated? Yes. Although at the time that was not a common thing. Can women be brave and courageous? Yes. Although at the time, culture said that women were weak and frail. Uh, can women be bold and strong and violent if necessary in the face of danger? Yes. Women can be strong enough to fight um, oppressive regimes and, and women can, can rise up and must. Women in society must be a part of, of pushing back and pushing down violent and oppressive strongholds that limit our freedoms and limit um, who we are made to be. And so images, Imogen is this, right? She, she takes off um, from the castle and, and she goes on a, on a, on a, on a journey um, of sorts. And her goal is to, to ultimately find her, her husband and to bring him back to right thought, to bring, bring him back to right understanding about who she is and who they are as a married couple. She knows that he has somehow been deceived and she wants to save him. Um, and so she ends up in the, in the woods. And who does she meet but her brothers? But she doesn't know they're her brothers. Uh, and these are some cool scenes here, right? With Imogen, Guiderius, and Avaragus. Um, and they think she is awesome, right? They, they love her. They think she is so cool. Uh, they say, were you a woman? This is Act 3, Scene 6. Three, scene six. Were you a woman, youth? I should woo hard. <laughs> but be your groom in honesty. I bid for you as I do by. Um, and then Avaragus says, I'll make it my comfort he is a man. I'll love him as my brother. And such a welcome as I'd give him, after long absence, such as yours, most welcome. Be sprightly, 
for you fall among, amongst friends. Uh, and she calls herself Fidel, right? Faithful one. Um, faithfulness. And that's truly what she is. Uh, she says, um, she, she seems to, to see something in them of great value as well. She even says, uh, pardon me, gods, I'd change my sex to be companion with them since Leonatus falls. She seems to suddenly want to be a man so that she can be in their fellowship as a brother and because she sees this, this, this value in who they are and in their character. That's a, that's a cool scene there. That's uh, Act 3, Scene 7. Um, some great lines there. I'm skipping a lot of the sections where Clotin is. This guy is an absolute idiot, and, 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 the, and Shakespeare makes it very clear that he's a fool. Um, eventually gets killed. Um, and uh, and other things happen there, right? But um, but he is just kind of a an obstacle in the way of of Imogen being free, and so she pushes on in spite of him. And, uh, and Cotton comes to try to make her his, and he is killed by by uh, Guiderius and, uh, and Avaragus uh, because he well he's very cocky and prideful, thinking he could fight them. And um, and he loses, right? And uh, he is destroyed by Guiderius uh, here in Act Four, Scene Two. But they have no idea he is the prince. Uh, Guiderius enters carrying Clotin's head, <laughs> and uh, and what is it that rises up in him but this princely blood, right, to defend his brother, whom Clotin is seeking to destroy. And and so these young young princes, even though they don't know their princes, are acting as princes. They are they are striking out against the cancer that is in the kingdom. They are protecting the nation, and they don't even know it, because it is in their nature to be to be men of integrity, to be men of valor, to be to be good men. Um, and so they act in ways that are faithful. And then not only are they a blessing to their father and to the forest, but they're a blessing to the entire country, even though they don't even know it, which is kind of cool. Uh, one of the very famous uh, sections is in Act 4, Scene 2, where Guiderius, as Polydor says, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou the worldly task has done. Home art gone and taken thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. Avaragus jumps in. This is, um, this is what they speak over Imogen's dead body. They believe that Imogen has died. Of course, they are mistaken. She is not dead, but merely has taken the sleeping drugs, the sleeping potion, um, and that, uh, that, it, that the queen actually got from the druggist, right? Uh, she wanted death pills or, or poison, but he gave her sleeping pills. So Imogen takes these um, and they think that she is dead. But she's not. So Avaragus continues, Fear no more the frown of the great. Thou art past the tyrant's stroke. Care no more to clothe and eat. To thee the reed is as the oak. The scepter, learning physic must, all follow this and come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Fear not slander, censure, rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must consign to thee and come to dust. No exerciser harm thee, nor no witchcraft charm thee. Ghost unlaid before thee, nothing ill come near thee. Quiet consummation have, and renowned be thy grave. That is such an awesome 
um, speech they give over uh, Imogen's body there. Um, and uh, again, thinking that she is dead, but she is not, obviously. She is alive, but just sleeping very deeply from the drugs that she has taken unknowingly. Um, all right, so let's keep moving on. Imogen awakes finally. And there are some confusion, some misidentifications here that happen that I want to skip through. Although, as you read it, it's very interesting. Um, misidentification, um, misunderstanding about identity is important. Um, partly because much of the text is about either knowing or forgetting who you are. Now, you could argue that posthumous Leonatus forgets who he is and thus the confusion that sets in in his life. You could argue that Imogen does not forget who she is and therefore she is not deceived by Yachimo. Uh, you could argue that uh, Cymbeline is not aware of who people are around him, and thus he enters into great um, errors in judgment. So mistaken identity often points to the nature of identity and our understanding of who we are and who others are around us. Usually these kinds of things in Shakespeare end up kind of um, focusing on the idea that People are complex, and more than just kind of knowing who somebody is exactly, the most important thing to recognize is that other people are complex um, individuals with many complex feelings and thoughts and emotions, and we must treat them as such. We must treat them in the sacred, sacred mystery that, that surrounds them. If we treat people simplistically, we run into great error. If we treat them with a sense of sacred mystery that truly surrounds them, then perhaps we're treating them in fullness and truth. All right, so we move into Act 5. And in Act 5, some awesome things happen. Um, this is posthumous at the beginning. Yay, bloody cloth, I'll keep thee, for I wished... Thou shouldst be colored thus. You married one. If each of you should take this course, how many must murder wives much better than themselves for rying but a little? O Pisanio, O Pisanio, every good servant does not all commands. No bond but to do just ones. Okay, so there's, there's quite a bit of interesting things being said here. First he talks to people that are married. You married couples. <laughs> If you follow my course, which it seems he is regretting now. He's asked for the murder of Imogen. He's asked that Pisanio murder his wife because, like Othello, he feels wronged. But now he is having second thoughts. He said, this course that I've taken perhaps is not the best course. Or he says, quite plainly, it's not. Because my wife... Um, is, is better than I. She's a better woman than I am. And then he moves on to Pisanio, talking about what good servants do. Every good servant does not all commands, but just ones. And this is an interesting idea about what it is to be a citizen. A good citizen follows just laws, but not unjust laws. 
there are nations all over the world today, China, Saudi Arabia, uh, Rwanda, even in our own history in America where good citizens have rejected the bad laws of their governments. And this is noble and right, according to Shakespeare. According to Shakespeare, a good citizen does not follow bad laws that oppress and condemn people. A good citizen does not follow a law that hurts others. And there are many, even today. In Saudi Arabia, a lot of the laws against women that limit women, that hurt women, are unjust. And there are many courageous people all through Saudi Arabia who are standing up today against their government because of it. In Iran, a lot of what's going on in Iran is about this issue of, this, of the Iranian government um, unfairly oppressing the, the women in the, in the nation. And the women are not having it. And men and women all over Iran today are rising up against an unjust set of laws that limit and oppress the freedoms of women. It's not, not right. It's unfair. And it must be stopped. And people of great character and nobility will have courage to stand up against them. And so even here, this is posthumous making that argument. A good citizen obeys only just commands. Well, the important thing here is that posthumous is very repentant. He is very sad for what he has done. He goes on in line 29, Let me make men know more valor in me than my habits show. God's put the strength of the Leonati in me to shame the guise of the world. I will begin the fashion less without and more within. This is a great line here. Again, talking about something we've talked about already in this play. Internal versus external nobility. And he's saying, I need more within, more nobility within me, and less worry about what's going on outside of me. Uh, less worry about my reputation, perhaps, that he thinks has been destroyed by a cheating wife or an unfaithful wife, and more about who he is on the inside. And this is exactly what we see with Imogen, right? Revenge? No. <laughs> you fool. I will not seek revenge. Just because this is embarrassing, because my husband has cheated on me, or as you say, he is, he is cheating on me. I will not seek revenge. I will not worry about my reputation. I will worry about what is honorable and noble and good. And I will follow that course, which is a course that seeks to build up my character within my own heart, within my own life. I will not worry about what happens outside of my life and with my reputation. That is not necessary. The second man at the beginning of this Act 5 is Yachmo. And he has these very similar lines as Posthumus. The heaviness and guilt within my bosom takes off my manhood. I have belied a lady, the princess of this country, and the air on it revengingly enfeebles me. Or could this carl of very drudge of natures have subdued me in my profession? Uh, knights and honors, born as I wear mine, are titles but of scorn, if that thy gentry, Britain, go before this lout, as he exceeds our lords, the odds is that we scarce are men, and you are gods. Almost the exact same themes are expressed in Yachmo's speech here. He realizes what he, he, realizes what he has done is, is disdainful, is dishonorable, 
Um, he realizes that his simple title, that is the thing that his, his reputation is built upon, is meaningless because on the inside, what he has done and what, what who he has been has been dishonorable. And so the title, the reputation mean nothing and he is humbled by his own shamefulness. And we'll see both Posthumus and Yachimo come clean and, and, they, and they reveal themselves for who they really are at the end here, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, as they are brought before the council, they give these powerful speeches and they have these powerful revelations where they apologize, they repent, they, 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 they speak a sorrow for what they've done. Um, there is a scene here with Jupiter and, and so forth that, that he dreams about um, that it is, is, is an important in its way of tr- helping him transform his vision. Um, and that's, that's really the important thing. You see Posthumus and Yachmo, their vision is transformed. They begin to see things uh, truly. Uh, and because of their humility, they begin to see things more clearly. And so we move all the way now to the end. Posthumus, in many ways, seems a changed man, um, as does Yachmo. And, um, and probably the most important lines here are at the end, as they are in front of the king. Um, it says, let's see here, this is Act 5, Scene 5, line 165. Um, you have Imogen say, pointing to his hand, pointing to, um, to Posthumus' hand, um, what is that? Oh, sorry, pointing to, to Yachimo's hand, what is that? And it's the ring, a diamond upon your finger. How came it yours? says the king. You have a diamond on your finger. How is that yours? And Yachmo says, Thou wilt torture me to leave unspoken, that which to be spoken would torture thee. Yachmo doesn't think that this thing can be fixed at this point. Simoline says, How? Me? And Yachmo says, I am glad to be constrained to utter that which torments me to conceal. By villainy I got this ring. So he, he says, it, it, it kills me to conceal this, but I will, I will tell you. By villainy I got this ring. T'was Leonidas' jewel, whom thou didst banish, and which more may grieve thee, as it doth me, a nobler sir ne'er lived, twixt sky and ground. Wilt thou hear me, my, la- my lord? And he tells the story about how he tricked, right? How he tricked Posthumus. And, um, and Posthumus is, is able to hear this, as is Imogen and Cymbeline. Um, and, uh, and, Yashimo, and, and, and Posthumus is there listening, and he says in line 245, Act 5, Scene 5, line 245, coming forward, Posthumus. I, so thou dost, Italian fiend. I, me, most credulous fool. So he calls Yachimo a fiend, but he calls himself a credulous fool, egregious murderer, thief, anything that's due to all the villains past in being, that's due to all the villains, sorry, to, um, sorry, I read the same line twice. That's due to all the villains past in being to come. Oh, give me a cord, a knife, or poison, some upright justice. Thou king, send out for torturers ingenious. It is I that all the abhorred things of the earth amend by being worse than they. I am posthumous that killed thy daughter. Villain-like, I lie. 
Now, Posthumus didn't kill her, but he ordered for her execution, and he believes that that order went through. O sacrilegious thief, to do it, the temple of virtue was she. Yea, and she herself spit and throw stones, cast mire upon me, set the dogs of the street to bay me. Every villain be called Posthumus Leonatus, and be villainy less than twas. O Imogen, my wife, my life, my wife, sorry, my queen, my life, my wife. O Imogen, Imogen, Imogen. And what is Imogen? She's there. She runs to him. Peace, my lord, here, here. That's a pretty cool scene. Posthumus, clearly repentant. I mean, you can't, there's not a whole lot more you could say to show sorrow and repentance, to show a changed heart. He knows he's been a fool. He doesn't even make Yachimo out to be that bad. Yachimo is the reason he did this all, but he knows it's him though. He takes he takes responsibility even, which I, which I like. Imogen runs to him. I love that image of her running. Posthumus doesn't recognize her. And he says, Shall have a play of this, thou scornful page? There, lie thy part. He pushes her away and she falls. He doesn't realize that's Imogen. And then Pisanio there again, helping his, his buddy. Oh, gentlemen, help mine and your mistress. My lord Posthumus, this is your lady. Posthumus says, how comes these staggers on me? He's dizzy, right? Um, they have to wake up Imogen. She must have been knocked out or something, right? Uh, Imogen says, oh, get thee from my sight. Thou gavest me poison. He's, he says this to Cymbeline. Uh, Dangerous fellow, hence breathe not where princes are. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, he's saying this to, to Pisanio, but nonetheless. Here's Imogen and, and Posthumus talking now for the first time. They, there's a, this is called a recognition scene. Right? A, a key recognition scene is what this is called. That's a very important thing in Shakespearean plays, the recognition scene. We'll talk about that a little more later when we talk about the winter's tale. The recognition scene is very important. Um, but we have this um, moment of recognition where she was in a disguise. Right, She was still Fidel in this moment. She had been taken captive because she was part of the Roman army and they captured her and she was there in the in the in the presence of her father in disguise. And um, so finally she says to him, she says to Posthumus, Why did you throw your wedded lady from you? Think that you are upon a rock and now throw me again? She embraces him. Posthumus says, Hang there like a fruit my soul till the tree die. That's a great line. Just stay right here. He's just so happy to have her back with him, alive. He's so happy as he realizes that, that what he believed was true is now, is now not true, but the reality he, he sees now in front of him is far better than the reality he imagined. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wonderful um, realization or recognition scene. He's recognizing more than just Imogen. He's recognizing so many other things that he thought were true were false. And he's recognizing the things he believed about life are not true. And this is a wonderful moment. And I'm sure you've had those moments in your life where you've believed something and perhaps it's, it's something that has kept you in bondage. Perhaps it's something that has kept you, has limited your freedom, has limited your view of, of others and yourself. And all of a sudden you realize 
That's a false belief that's holding me back. And now I'm having this epiphany. I'm having this recognition moment, as Posthumus does. And he says, ah, hang there like a fruit. He's holding her, right? My soul, till the tree die. Let's just keep this moment right here. Um, and so the play ends in this fashion, right? Uh, there are many other recognitions. Belarius uh, comes clean before the king. Gaiderius and Avaragus are revealed as, as the princes and the kingdom is reunited. Cymbeline even himself comes to see things as they are. And he has the last words of the play, which is also very important. He says these words, Laud we the gods, and let our crooked smokes climb to their nostrils from our blessed altars. I like that idea of crooked smokes. He's talking about the, the, the way a, a smoke rises, but in some ways he's talking about his own offering, his own life as crooked, broken, um, not perfect. Right? He, he realizes his grave errors. Publish we this piece to all our subjects. Set we forward. Let a Roman and a British ensign wave friendly together. Let peace be between Rome and Britain. So through Lud's town march, and in the temple of great Jupiter our peace we'll ratify. Seal it with feasts, set on there. Never was a war did cease, ere bloodied hands were washed with such a peace. He declares peace. He declares peace with Rome. Uh, Rome has been asking for a tribute because uh, this is Roman Britain at the time. And uh, Cymbeline has refused to pay tribute to Rome, although he should because that is the proper authority over his country. And so now he agrees to pay the tribute. He's making peace with Rome. He is now seeing the error of his ways. And hopefully this humility will allow him to be a better ruler in the future. Hopefully it will allow him to be a better father to Imogen and a better father-in-law to posthumous Leonatus and, um, and even to his own sons. Uh, thus ends the play Cymbeline. Hopefully you enjoy this. Please send me questions, concerns, or other follow-up thoughts, and uh, we'll talk to you later.